Welcome everyone to our virtual talk today hosted by the China Institute at the University of Alberta. My name is Jia Wang. I'm the interim director of the China Institute. I'm so delighted that Professor Reza Hasmas has kindly agreed to share key findings from his highly anticipated new research project that examines the efficacy of international organizations naming and shaming China on alleged human rights violations. The University of Alberta acknowledges that we're located on Treaty 6 territory and respects the his histories, languages, and cultures of First Nations, Métis, Inuit, and all First Peoples uh, of, of Canada, whose presence continues to enrich our vibrant community. Professor Hasma's presentation uh, today will be followed by Q&A. We encourage our audience members to submit your questions using the Zoom Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Questions can be submitted at any time, but we'll try to address them after the presentation. I'm so delighted to uh, introduce our feature speaker today, Professor Reza Hasmas. He's a full professor at the uh, political science department at the University of Alberta, and he's also a academic advisor of the China Institute. He received his PhD from Cambridge University. A true international scholar, he has previously held faculty positions at the universities of Toronto, Melbourne, and Oxford, and has worked for think tanks, consultancies, development agencies, and NGOs in the United States, Canada, Australia, UK, and China. His award-winning research exams how the behavior of emerging Chinese state and non-state actors potentially affect salient theories, practices, and assumptions in international affairs. Without further ado, Reza, the virtual floor is yours for your presentation. Uh, good morning, everyone. And thank you uh, for Jia and her team for organizing this webinar. I'm just going to share my screen with you before I commence the uh, conversation we're going to have today on naming and shaming China on human rights. Um, so spare with me while I just move these icons around. Brilliant. So uh, this is a really interesting project um, that I've literally finished writing up a few hours ago, to be very frank. Um, it's something that's been two decades in the making. A lot of the work I've been doing, um, you know, since the early 2000s is looking at how social organizations operate in China. Uh, I've also looked at very sensitive issues on China, looking at ethnicity and, and rights and, 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 and the sort of understanding of how China operates itself in terms of human rights framework. And it, you know, over the years, I've often tried to imagine and try to analyze and examine whether or not um, international pressure on China actually works. Um, and so in this particular paper, um, in this particular study in general, I'm trying to understand, does naming and shaming as a tactic um, actually uh, change or shifts China's human rights uh, sort of work? And so I'm going to detail it to you in a much more uh, um, uh, um, academic fashion. Um, and I'll give you some data, I'll illustrate some regressions, then I'll try to talk about the implications and then talk about strategies China could potentially take to combat the naming and shaming. And, um, and then perhaps we can open up to the floor to see any questions you may have. So let me start off by suggesting this. Um, 
Naming and shaming is a popular strategy employed by human rights organizations to improve the human rights conditions in a target nation. So naming and shaming, it's really been theorized as a rhetorical coercion, so to speak. It's, it's employing sort of rhetoric to affect change through global shame, rather than hard forms of coercion or persuasion, such as, for example, um, military intervention or economic sanctions, which has been quite in vogue in, over the last couple of months. Um, in most jurisdictions, naming and shaming has not been very effective overall. Um, in fact, if you look at studies in Latin America, uh, naming and shaming was only found to be most effective in targeted uh, nations, which had a high dependency on foreign aid. Um, and, and, and that's not necessarily the reality we see in the Chinese context. There's very little work uh, out there that actually examines whether or not naming and shaming actually can be used um, um, as an effective strategy in the Chinese context. Um, the, the assumption has been is that, well, it has worked in other, in, in other jurisdictions, but where it has worked is when, as I suggested from other studies, it's where um, there's a high dependency on foreign aid. So it's coupled with other strategies um, beyond naming and shaming. Um, and in fact, if you want to look at the, at the um, prevailing sort of literature out there, it suggests that naming and shaming from NGOs and religious organizations have the strongest effect, while international governmental organizations such as the UN uh, Human Rights Council uh, had the weakest effect. Um, and in fact, the effects of naming and shaming was most strong when it came from multiple sources. So this is a sort of the background sort of work in terms of trying to understand, does naming and shaming China on human rights work? So I'll give you a few words about the methodological strategy. Um, basically, I collected all the publicly available human rights reports pertaining to China um, from three different human rights-based organizations between 1991 and 2021. So we have a 30-year kind of sample there. Uh, the three organizations were Amnesty International, uh, Human Rights Watch, and the Office of the United Nations Human Rights Commissioner for Human Rights, as well as their uh, sort of interrelated sort of organization within the UN system, uh, the UN Human Rights Council. Um, so, you know, Amnesty International um, has been quite uh, um, active on campuses, so many, many of you might be aware of them, whereby they're an international NGO headquartered in London, UK. Um, its stated mission goal is to, quote, ensure every person enjoys all the human rights enshrined in the United Nations Declaration of Human Rights and other human rights instruments. It aims to accomplish this by undertaking research and action focused on preventing and ending uh, grave abuses of these rights. Then we have Human Rights Watch, uh, which is a New York City-based organization, which, quote, uses traditional on-the-ground fact-finding with new technologies and innovative advocacy to do research and advocacy on economic, social, cultural, political, and civil human rights. Finally, we have the Office of the, UN, of the United Nations High Commissioner for Human Rights um, and the UN Human Rights Council, which is a leading intergovernmental agency, which looks at the full range of human rights and freedoms set out in the 1948 UN Declaration on Human Rights. And as an organization, they aim to promote, protect, empower, and assist governments in injecting human rights sort of perspective into all UN programs. So effectively, I took all the publicly available uh, sort of documents pertaining to China from these organizations um, and collected it into a sort of a database to analyze uh, the sort of strategies that's used. Now, there's 
you know, if you get into greater depth into in terms of how uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch uh, and the UN system actually utilize naming and shaming strategies, well, there's some slight variations. So Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch generally uses press releases uh, intended for the media and the general public's consumption. Uh, they might have more detailed background reports based on uh, more in-depth human rights uh, investigations. Um, Amnesty International in particular also pursues urgent action campaigns, and they generally get their, um, uh, their members to write letters to an offending government. In the United Nations Human Rights Council, the process for naming and shaming, it's much more uh, process driven. It has four possible outcomes. So first, uh, if there's an alleged abuse, the target nation's abuses are discussed in the private session and does not continue. Um, there might be confidential considerations may continue. There might be a mild sanction as issue, such as a critical statement with limited publication, or they pass a public resolution condemning the abuses. So this gives you sort of a background behind the sort of the internal strategies that Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the United Nations uh, HRC does when it comes to naming and shaming strategies. So as I said, I collected all the available information uh, that's publicly uh, accessible over the last 30 years from 1991 to 2021. And here we can see the total number of human rights reports on China per annum uh, during this time period. What's really interesting when you look at this chart is from 2008 onwards, we see an increase in terms of the human rights reports. Um, you know, and if we look at 2013 in particular, uh, well, rather 2008 is when China hosted the International uh, Olympic Committee's uh, um, Summer Games. Uh, so the, uh, there was greater attention on China, um, but by 2013, 2020, sorry, 2012, 2013, uh, we see Xi Jinping increasing, actually getting power. So the new sort of regime at this stage. So under the Xi Jinping era, there's been more human rights reports by these three agencies um, than ever beforehand in, 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 since in, in the 20th and 21st century. Um, so it's really interesting to see that these reports are increasing in scale and scope. And in fact, what we see here is the total combined reports from the three organizations spanning 1991 and 2021. Um, if you really want to get really specific, uh, um, Human Rights Watch and, and uh, the United Nations Human Rights Watch was 1991 to 2020. Uh, the United Nations system was 2013 to 2020. Um, those were where we saw an abundance of these sort of reports on, on China's uh, human rights, uh, alleged human rights uh, uh, abuses. Now, what's really fascinating is this aggregating um, these kinds of reports by uh, not only theme, but also by affected persons. So here we can see the general themes um, that um, you know, are conducive to, to these reports that's being issued by these three organizations. Uh, generally speaking, they are uh, rights-based kinds of reports. That is political and civil rights-based kinds of uh, uh, alleged abuses. Um, we see that there is discrimination. We see that uh, there's economic discrimination. Uh, we see that generally seems to be the, uh, uh, the major kinds of reports um, um, on an annual basis, by a thematic basis, that is. I should mention that these themes are self-reported. And so um, it's actually coded by uh, the United Nations, these particular themes. And what we ended up doing is just um, um, coding it in terms of the uh, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch um, sort of themes as well into the UN sort of themes. So we can really see a distinctive themes, particularly in the 2010s, 
um, as, I, as I mentioned. Um, now there's also by affected persons. What we see is that activists are being targeted more uh, in terms of human rights reports. We see um, that uh, there's political uh, sort of uh, um, persecution perhaps. Um, we see that the least reports um, are, are, are generally looking at uh, um, uh, children is not there as much. Uh, drug use is not so much. Um, we see, for example, here in, in, in that uh, um, um, vulnerable individuals are, are increasing in scale and scope, ethnic minorities, um, particularly among Xinjiang. So we can really see how the, the nature of China's human rights, uh, sort of alleged human rights reports uh, uh, has shifted uh, and been in, in, in the 2010s uh, based on this data here. Now, this is not necessarily, um, the purpose is really to try to understand is putting pressure on China working? So on the one hand, we've co I've collected all the data looking at Human Rights Watch, Amnesty International, the United Nations, um, looking at the, the type of reports on, 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 on alleged human rights abuses, uh, looking at the affected persons. Um, and what we can see here is that all three human rights organizations have maintained a, a concerted effort to both name China's alleged human rights violations and also to shame them internationally through awareness campaigns and um, aimed at highlighting these alleged abuses. So what, what these um, 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 naming and shaming efforts really do is that they put pressure, at least in theory, on China in a myriad of uncountable ways. So for example, um, you know, it can be through a potential loss of international investment. Um, it can be through negative media coverage. It can be further gar uh, garnering of negative international reputation concerning human rights. So for example, when we're looking at uh, the alleged abuses in Xinjiang, um, there's been a lot of international investment that China's lost by virtue of these alleged uh, abuses in, in, in the Xinjiang area. So how to examine whether or not this is effective? To test the effect, really, of the reports on human rights in China. So we've collected reports. I've, I've given you the disaggregation of those reports. The next way to actually test to see if there's any causal relationship. Um, I used the, our world in data sort of project data. This is an Oxford University's uh, um, data set. Um, and, and, and what they have here is that they have six major indices um, looking at uh, human rights score, economic freedom, political competition, human rights violations, democracy participation and competition, and freedom of press. So effectively, what I'm trying to do here is test those indices and that sort of data set that they have there on the basis of the sort of reports to see if there's any demonstrable sort of uh, um, uh, shifts uh, in China's behavior. So amongst the indices tested, human rights score was statistically significant, which, which is great news because it tells us we have a, a sort of a score that we can utilize to try and understand whether or not these reports actually play a role to some extent um, in, in changing China's human rights score. Um, just uh, for academic reasons, the economic freedom score was not statistically significant. Human rights violations, democracy participation, competition, and freedom of press did not have enough pre or post treatment data. Um, and uh, political competition did not have much diverse data to afford meaningful causal analysis. But again, as I suggested to you, the human rights score was statistically significant, which makes it a great sort of comparator to try and understand how these reports actually might play a role in, in testing the human rights score.
So I'm going to give you a series of charts. I'm going to give you a series of, 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 uh, of um, uh, regressions. If you're not statistically inclined, not to worry. I'll, uh, after I go through a few of these charts, I will uh, try to uh, explain to you the implications and, and, and what they really mean. So um, first thing, the first chart I'm going to look at is the causal effect of organizations' reports on China's human rights score. Effectively, what this chart is suggesting is that the United Nations um, uh, their reports have a, have a greater causal effect on China's human rights score. Um, and you can see that it's a gross, gross uh, variation compared to Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. Um, so what this suggests here is that the United Nations, followed by Human Rights Watch, um, play a, uh, and followed by the combined element, or rather, sorry, the United Nations then combined and Human Rights Watch uh, all play a statistically significant uh, sort of role in terms of changing the perception. But as you can see, the gross majority of the United Nations work does play a role in affecting China's human rights score. And, and I'm going to explain why that's the case as we continue this presentation. Amnesty International was not statistically significant. Um, so that is that is uh, that was something that uh, had to be dealt with. And I'll discuss that a bit more uh, in a moment. In fact, let me show you the Amnesty International effect on China's human rights score. So although Amnesty International appears to have, a, um, have caused a positive effect, this effect is not statistically significant, as I mentioned, um, when considering the entire post-intervention period as a whole. So individual days or shorter stretches within the intervening period may, of course, still have a significant effect um, whenever the lower limits of the impact time series was above zero. Um, this apparent effect could be the result of random fluctuations that are unrelated to the intervention. This is often the case when the intervention period is very long and includes much of the time uh, when, when the effect is already worn off. Um, and so, you know, what we see here is that Amnesty International may not have had a major effect that's statistically significant. Um, so that's effectively what this graph is illustrating here. When we look at Human Rights Watch, um, you know, we see that the individual data points during the post-intervention period, the response variable had an overall value of 51.67. By contrast, if the intervention did not take place, we would expect a sum of 43.35. In other words, that's a fancy way of suggesting to you that Human Rights Watch had about a 19-20%, uh, um, sorry, the exact figure was 19% uh, uh, sort of effect on, on China's human rights score. Um, and then if we go to the United Nations, uh, we see here the, the best effect is from the UN system um, where, um, you know, uh, there is a approximate 124% uh, uh, change. That's a, that's a, that's, that's, that's a, a significant change here on China's human rights score. And finally, the combined effect here, uh, we see um, that uh, the response variable had an overall value of 54.28. By contrast, if there was no intervention among all three parties, that is a, um, Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the United Nations, um, we would expect a, uh, a score of 44.70. So, um, you know, in relative terms, the response variable showed an increase of 21%. Now, again, if you're not statistically inclined, this may be seen as fancy charts, but it doesn't tell you much. Um, there's a few takeaways here. This is what I can suggest to you. There's a few takeaways we can have from all of this. Foremost, treatment for the United Nations is the most successful. That's the first takeaway from the data. And why that's important is as follows. Um, 
when we look at human rights in China, um, or rather when we look at human rights in general, uh, we often forget that there's actually two different discourses on human rights that's you know predominant and it's been predominant in, 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 in the in latter part of the 20th century and in the early 21st century. That is, there's an international convention on civil and political rights, and there's an international convention on economic, social, and cultural rights. Um, the United Nations, as, as an as organization, um, does practice both economic, social, and cultural rights, as well as civil and political rights. So it may suggest one of the reasons why the United Nations has been most successful in actually uh, influencing China's human rights record. But we can dig a bit deeper into that as well. China has been successful as well at avoiding being condemned by the United Nations Human Rights Council's public resolutions um, because it is a member of the United Nations Human Rights Council. Um, and it's also proposed alternative models of human rights, less focused on civil and political rights and more so on economic, social and cultural rights where it's a party to the International Convention on Economic, Social, and Cultural Rights, and it's not a party to the Civil and Political uh, Convention. So um, in, in, in put differently, what we do find is that China does try to promote conceptualizing human rights in local contexts, um, which you know, many critics have argued that it, it, it weakens human rights, uh, or at least civil and political rights, and the UNHRC's uh, sort of work. Now, so the UN has been the most successful based on the data. The combined effect on all treatments is the next successful. That's just another way of suggesting when you combine Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, and the United Nations, uh, when you find that all three uh, organizations true pressure China, that's the most second most successful. The third most successful is Human Rights Watch. Um, and the least successful is Amnesty International. Um, and, and a lot of it has to do with the fact that Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International, um, they do rely a lot on local NGOs' presence to be more, uh, to, to, that leads to more campaigning and to more engagement. Uh, for those of you who um, you know, might be aware of, of the Chinese context, um, you know, international NGOs, particularly rights-based NGOs, have a very difficult time operating in China at this stage. Uh, both Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International um, have a difficult time um, relying on local uh, human rights organizations who they partner with, um, or even being having a presence in the mainland. So um, and this can pot potentially contribute to the fact uh, why uh, those two organizations are not as successful. It's simply because of, um, uh, one, they are more civil and political rights-based rather than economic, social, and cultural rights, and two, um, because they don't have much of a local presence um, as they do in other jurisdictions, which makes them more effective. Now, you know, there is some methodological concerns. Um, one of that being is that uh, the human rights score is not without controversy, without it in terms of its methodology. Um, it is possible that China's human rights score shifted during the treatment period, which has no uh, reasons for, uh, which has no connection to human rights reports. Um, so maybe economic development, local resistance, a rising middle class, um, or international investment. So they can all play a role, but statistically speaking, um, the data does show that there is a good correlation um, 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 between the United Nations um, and combined treatments and uh, Human Rights Watch in particular as statistically significant to the human rights score. Now, 
The last thing I want to mention is looking at uh, potential countering strategies by China. And the reason why I do this is that it allows us to understand what strategies China might use to combat potential human rights allegations. And if you're thinking even further ahead, um, uh, you know, strategies that uh, international organizations can do in retort to counteract their counter strategies, so to speak. So there are rhetorical methods um, a targeted state can use to deny, deflect, or otherwise counter naming and shaming allegations on the international stage. There is, for instance, the uh, reverse rhetorical uh, entrapment response, naming and shaming. But, um, and we saw this being done in the United States response to uh, human rights watches, shaming of torture interrogation methods post 9-11. Um, and what you saw is that the US administration at the time responded with a framing that its methods were justified to battle the war on terror. And we see China has used this sort of uh, reverse rhetorical entrapment response when it comes to Xinjiang, whereby it's tried to link um, the rise of ethnic tensions in the region to potential terrorism. So it was a, it was a way, it was a playbook that was used by the United States, in fact, uh, post 9-11. Um, and, you know, we can utilize this as a reverse rhetorical entrapment response. So in many respects, um, it... Uh, um, it is something that uh, um, uh, you're, you're using a consequentialist argument about whether or not um, methods can be effective and not simply whether the torture was a human rights violation effectively. So we have to be mindful that China is utilizing a response such as this. Uh, another rhetorical method can be the implication contest. And in the case of human rights, um, watch, for example, they were naming and shaming the Israeli Defense Force during the Lebanon War and the Gaza War. Um, and when accused of violating international humanitarian law, the Israeli Defense Force did not argue against the credibility or applicability of international humanitarian law, but rather utilized abstract vagaries to argue that its tactics were not excessive according to international humanitarian law. And in turn, uh, Human Rights Watch was countershamed by the Israeli Defense Force. Um, and they actually employed pro-IDF um, uh, NGOs, such as NGO Monitor, to their assistance. So, um, you know, this is something that if China is um, um, uh, named and shamed in this respect, they can do an implication contest kind of strategy. There's some other strategies that China can use to counter uh, some of the naming and shaming out there. So for instance, the naming and shaming of political rights abuses tends to lead targeted states to substitute the name abuses for other more violent abuses. So this is what's called a repression substitution hypothesis. So I'll give you an example. Um, if, uh, if there was uh, um, killing, if there was um, a capital punishment, for example, um, when shame for imprisonment or torture, um, while the less violent imprisonment and disappearance were also significant substitutes for torture. In other words, um, you know, what we do find is when you name and shame of political rights abuses, it can actually lead to other abuses, uh, much more violent abuses. And the, and the, the evidence see that from other jurisdictions that we do see this as a reality. So it is possible that China may stop its abuses on X, but actually do something much more harmful in Y as a substitution. Finally, another technique that China can utilize, um, you know, it can avoid the adverse consequences of being shamed by simply pursuing new international relationships with like-minded nation states. So that way it's not being uh, named and shamed 
the effects of the naming and shaming can actually be contained by virtue of having greater alliances and greater sorts of allegiances to other uh, like-minded nation states, whether there'll be Russia, for example, which has made the headlines today. Um, you know, this is, this is something that China can do to potentially counteract the naming and shaming strategies that international organizations utilized. So at the end of the day, the takeaway from this talk is this. When it comes to naming and shaming in China, generally speaking, um, economic, social, and cultural rights as a, as a human right tends to have the best outcomes. Um, and so that's why we see the United Nations as an entity um, has the best possible outcomes, whereby if you're naming and shaming China in terms of civil and political rights, generally speaking, um, you're, you, there's not as much influence that, that global actors have um, in terms of their influence on China in this respect. Um, finally, there are issues in China that are more susceptible to naming and shaming because it's a low cost to the, to the regime. For example, if you name and shame China in terms of the environment, um, they are more statistically likely to be responsive to that because it's seen as a much more safer sort of topic area than, say, uh, civil and political rights-oriented sort of um, naming and shaming tactics. So that's the sort of the key takeaways that the study illustrates. Um, and I've done it both through statistical data, as, as, as I've illustrated, uh, but also through, um, you know, uh, understanding the sort of uh, strategies that other nations have utilized to counteract naming and shaming strategies. So let me uh, end the presentation there.